Right. Good evening. Welcome, welcome. Tonight's shear is going to be on the parsha. I thank everybody for coming out on a Sunday night to learn Tyra with me on the parsha. This week's Torah portion. This week's Torah portion is the end of the book of Shmois, the end of the book of Exodus. We're going to learn Parsha's Pekude. Now, normally this comes with last week's parsha together by Yakel and Pekude. This year, it's just Pekude alone. So it's going to be mostly predominantly tonight a summary and some loose ends of the Mishkan. The Mishkan is the portable temple tabernacle that the Jewish people had in the Midbar, in the wilderness. Their 40 years they were wandering and then afterwards in Eretz Yisrael until the Holy Temple was first built in Jerusalem. So it's the Mishkan and also the Big Day Kahuna, the garments at the Kohanim and the general Kohanim and the Kohanim Gedolim, the high priest would wear in their avoida, in their service in the temple. So this week's parsha, to a large degree, is going to be a repetition of some of the ideas and concepts in previous weeks, which we're going to explore why the Torah even bothers to repeat it. Already was mentioned, why does it repeat it? And it's going to give us a chance to hopefully bring up a lot of interesting Torah on these ideas that we didn't get to in previous weeks. Many things they never said over in public before. So let's start. So the parsha starts out in chapter 38, verse 21 of the parsha, in the book of Shemais, the book of Exodus, and it says, uh, these are the accountings of the Mishkan. Pekude, the name of the parsha, means it's an accounting, sort of like uh, there's at least one accountant in the room. Accounting, you have to account for everything and where it was and where it went and how it came and where it went. So the same way, so these are the accountings of the Mishkan. So the parsha begins with Moshe Rabbeinu, Moshe, Moses, giving a very precise accounting of how each and every donation to the Mishkan, the first holy temple, was used. The question is why? Why? Why does Moshe have to give an accounting to? Did anybody think he, he pocketed the money that, uh, that came in? One for Hashem and one for me. And one for Hashem and one for me. What was this about? So the mere suggestion of what I'm about to say sounds outrageous. But the Medrash, in the Medrash Tanchuma, in our parsha, under Oiz Zion, says that Moshe had heard rumblings from amongst the Jewish people that perhaps he had pocketed some of the contributions. So therefore, Mishkan, these are the accountings of the Mishkan. Moshe Rabbeinu felt the need to account. Okay, this was the silver went here and the gold went here and the and the copper went here. And I used it as I was supposed to. So that's why Parsha starts with an accounting. Okay. So that's pretty fascinating because a lot of the Mofarshim, a lot of the commentaries want to point out. In truth, if you look at when the Jewish people earlier in the Tyra, earlier in the book of Exodus, they gave a lot of precious material. They volunteered a lot of gold for the construction of the agel, the calf, the golden calf. You don't find the Jewish people uh, or the Torah recording any kind of demand or an account of how their contributions had been used. They gave a lot of very valuable stuff for the agel, the golden calf. No, nobody said, there, yeah, yeah, where was it used? Was it for the nose, for the leg, the feet? Where's my stuff? How did you use it? was a mention over there. It was only mentioned over here in our Parsha. So the question is, why does this, the donations here and the voluntary contributions, why is it such a contrast to when the Jewish people coughed up so much stuff earlier? How come there's no accounting there? Bless you. So Rav Zalman Tzaratzkin Zatzal, the Vnaim Latayra, explains the distinction very beautifully. And this is a key idea. It's worth knowing. It's the first idea. It says like this, every Yid, every Jew, wants to do what's good and proper. We all want to do what's good and proper. And he says when a Jew gives tzedakah, charity, a Jew wants to know that his money is being used for Torah and avoid the Hashem to further God's agenda. 
If I give tzedakah, I want to know my money is being used to further God's agenda, irrespective of the amount. It could be five bucks, it could be 500 bucks, 50 million. I want to know, am I furthering God's agenda with this? But said Rav Zalman Saratskin, if a Jew does an Avera, a sin, a transgression, the Jewish person never feels good about it. In fact, deep down, when we do things that God doesn't want us to do, we kind of hope they're not going to work out. We hope that our plans to sin aren't even going to come to fruition deep down. Even if we're already going to go through the motions and do something we're not supposed to, deep down we're hoping it's not even going to work. It's not going to, it's not going to be successful. When we want to do good, we really want it to work. Even when we're doing the things we're not supposed to, half of us does, really wishes it won't work out. So therefore what? Said Rav Zalman Saratskin, when the Jewish people... We're going to give for the Egel. The Egel was a sin. The golden calf was a sin, according to most commentaries, similar to idolatry. So at the time, when they gave it, they, their, their heart wasn't even all in it, even though they gave it. So they secretly half hoped, at least half hope, eh, hope it'll get wasted. I wouldn't even care if it doesn't even get used to use for what it was supposed to be. I don't even care already. I don't even mind so much. But, so that's why there was no accounting then for the gold. Nobody asked, nobody cared, nobody questioned. Hey, did you pocket it? Wouldn't mind if you pocketed. Better you pocketed it than it be used for idolatry. But over here, when I was building the Mishkan, which is certainly a big mitzvah, they wanted to make sure that nothing had been wasted and nothing had been misappropriated. Interesting idea. Rav Zalman Sarotskin tumults with this. It's a classic idea in the commentaries that's discussed. And this Devar Torah, this insight, reminds me of something which many men have told me over time. Many of my Talmidim. Over the years, I've heard, especially from Balei Tshuva, people are becoming observant over time. Many people have told me over time that when they're starting to become observant, like they know what they're supposed to do and what they're not supposed to do. And let's say, but the guy is still in the habit of going out and clubbing and partying and looking for trouble with members of the opposite gender and this kind of stuff. The truth is, many of them have told me over time privately, so I wouldn't tell you their names, but they've told me that they secretly hope that the plans kind of fall through for the night. So this way, it's like from the man upstairs, and I don't mean a, an apartment to 5B, upstairs would be above us, but meaning from Hashem, that he would sort of like ruin the night, you know, to get me out of this test. You know, that secret, secretly, they're hoping that their Saturday night should be a dud. It shouldn't work out. I remember there was a, a young man, he used to come to my, my, my classes, and he told me a story that when he was in, uh, a yeshiva student in Israel, he was becoming observant. He was learning in one of the yeshivas there for Americans who were trying to explore their Judaism more. And he said to me that um, he was at the Western Wall, and he really meant to go to the Western Wall to pray with his friend, but there were college girls there. So he went to go talk to them, and they were from Michigan State, and uh, they were for college boys, and so, oh, let's meet up later, tonight, whatever else. And he was kicking himself the whole time, saying, oh, I hope this falls through. How could this be? I had to schlep myself 7,000 miles from home to come learn Tyra. You know, this, and I came, and I come to the Western Wall to get girls' phone numbers to go to Michigan State. Hey, that's what I came for. That's what he told me. And he said that, but he was going to go through with it anyway, and he was supposed to call them at like 9 o'clock, where you guys are, where you're doing, where we're going to meet, where we're going to meet up, whatever. And like they never answered his call, and they didn't pick up, and whatever. It just rang, and they didn't. And he was like secretly like, yes, you know, <laughs> yes. And he like, well, you know, went to go learn Torah instead. So anyway, so that's, uh, that's one Indian, one idea connected to the parsha. Now, Rav Moshe Feinstein's Atzal in the Darish Moshe says something interesting here also about the accounting. He says the idea of making an accounting of every little single thing that Hashem gave us 
and that we have, it doesn't stop with the items donated to the Mishkan. Rav Moshe writes in our parsha that really the idea of making an accounting should extend to all of the blessings and all of the talents and everything Hashem gave us. Meaning, we read about the Pekudei HaMishkan, the accountings of the Mishkan, and it's not just, okay, great, it's nice to know that 3,300 plus years ago, Moses in the Midbar in the wilderness, once upon a time, uh, basically gave an accounting that's very nice. But he extends the idea homiletically that we ourselves also, it's a second idea, have to know, that we have to take our own accountings. And I don't mean dollars and cents per se. We have to look at ourselves and take an honest stock and think, where has Hashem given me talents, ability, blessing, strength, financial, personal, interpersonal, organizational, uh, emotional? What ab abilities and talents do I have? And there's so many. And a person has to think, how can I leverage them to make a profit for the Rabbi Nishalaylam, for the master of the universe. How can I take what God gave me and use it to do good? And if, it's, if you're blessed and talented in your accounting, you realize in this way, I could use it that way. I could use it this way. I could use it this way. And the truth is, we all are very, very, very wealthy. I don't mean necessarily in terms of dollars and cents. Some more, some not. And that really, more often than not, is really a function of what Hashem gives us or doesn't give us. But all of us are very, very wealthy in terms of the talents and abilities we have. And it's up to us to take, says Rav Moshe Feinstein, uh, a reckoning, an accounting, to see how can we leverage them for the good. Now the Malbim, the Malbim makes a nice point over here about Moshe's accounting as well. He says that Hashem hates financial dishonesty. Now, it's not just the Malbim who says this. It says this throughout the entire Torah. The Rishonim, the Achreinim, the medieval commentaries, the later ones. The early, it says it everywhere. But Hashem hates financial dishonesty. And Hashem would never allow the Shechina, His presence, to come dwell in the Mishkan if anything uh, dishonest had gone into it in the accounting. Because if anybody was donating things that were stolen, there's people out there in the world, they think, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to make money however I make money. But you know what? It's okay. It's fine because I give my minimum 10% to tzedakah and nice Jewish Torah course. It's okay. You know, the, the means might not be so kosher, but the ends are glot kosher. So it's like good enough, you know. At the end of the parsha, the Torah says in chapter 40, verse 34, that after the whole building and structure was built in the Mishkan, the Shechina, God's divine presence, came and filled the Mishkan. We have to understand what that means, but God's presence came and said, okay, I'm ready, I like it, I'm happy, I'm ready to move in. The Pasuk says, the verse says, the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of Hashem filled the Mishkan. So the, so the Malbim wants to say over here in terms of the accounting that the fact that God said, you know what, this is a great place for me to move into, I'm ready, in view of the fact that Hashem, the Torah says all over the place, hates financial dishonesty. It is not interested in donations that are earned in a dishonest, non-kosher, treif way. But the fact that God was willing to move in shows that everything that was given up front is because Hashem himself was interested. Okay? So far so good? Yes? All right. Let me catch my breath. A drink of water. Keep going. Now, as I mentioned earlier, in Parshas Truman Tetzave, uh, earlier Parshas in the last couple weeks, we saw all of this, almost everything that's going to appear in our Parsha, we read it. It sounds familiar. We already got it in Truma and Tetzave, what, what, what the Mishkan is supposed to look like and all the items inside of it. And we also found out what is it that Kohanim are supposed to wear. We got it. We heard it. 
But in Vayakel and Pekude, these two parshas, at the end of the book of Shemos, it's like a review. It's almost like the Torah did a copy and paste job and pretty much copied and pasted the same text again. Question is, why? Did Hashem need more text to fill up a certain uh, uh, space limit? I mean, for the publisher, he was the publisher. So, so, so what's, what, what is, why did God have to repeat all this again? So Rav Chaim Shmulevet Zatzal, uh, in the, the Sichos Moser, he explains why so much space is devoted to it as follows. If you look in the book of Bereshis, in the book of Genesis, there's another famous thing over there that's repeated in a massive way. When Yitzchak needs to get married, Yitzchak needs a wife, Abraham, his father, tells his servant, Eliezer, I need you to do me a favor. I need you to go to my family from where I come from and this and that. And I need you to go and try to find a wife for my son. And, and he tells him what to do and this and that and this and that. And he goes and he does it. And then the Torah records not only the instructions, but also the exact episode of everything that happened to Eliezer again. Everything that happened, the Torah records that Eliezer repeats the whole story and all of these kind of details and everything to Rivka's family. The Torah could just say, and uh, everything that happened to Eliezer, he repeated over. You know, or it could just say another, just one sentence. And everything that uh, Abraham told him to do, he did. Makes sense. Just give me one sentence and I could summarize the whole thing. Instead, the Torah spends... Dozens and dozens and dozens of verses repeating the whole thing again. Why? Why does the Torah do that? So Reb Chaim Shmulevitz uses the answer that Rashi gives over there for here. The answer is, Rashi says over there, is that the lengthiness and repetition of the description, it's indicative, it's indicative of the preciousness of the topic and how many lessons for life ethical, moral, spiritual, Kabbalistic, and everything else are contained in there as well. So said Rav Chaim Shmulevitz, I know you're wondering why does this all appear, all of this Mishkan again, and the, the garments of the Kohanim again, what do I have to see it all again for? Says Rav Chaim Shmulevitz, it's the same thing. From the fact that it's repeated again, it tells you this is really, 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 really ultra important, and therefore you should mine it very, very well, because there's a treasure trove of lessons that this can teach us. And that answer basically makes sense. We all know, I think everyone in this room probably went to college, grad school, or has multiple graduate degrees from the people in this room. So what happens? We all know when you study for a final, what do you do? So you look back and you see, what did the professor speak about? If the professor spoke about, a, a, let's say in law school, a case, one time, and in passing, and even then it was only in response to a person raising their hand, it's probably not going to be a, a major issue on the final exam. But if there was like, let's say, 20 classes in the semester, and three were dealing with a specific doctrine of personal jurisdiction or something else, that's probably going to be on the final. There's going to be some points over there, and therefore this is important. The same way we look at the Torah, everything, if God put it in there, it's obviously important, he wants us to know about it. But if he repeated it again and again and again in such detail, it must be he's trying to tell us, hey, this is really, really important for you and your life to get in there and continue to try to learn out the lessons. Okay? So that's, but this has to be discussed. Why does the Torah repeat this again? Because it's an important topic. Why is it repeated? That's one answer. The Briskerov Zatzal has a totally different answer to why this is repeated. Very, very interesting. Very interesting. Listen to this well. The Gemara in Tractate Bechiris, Tavzayin Amad Bey 17b, makes it clear 
that Hashem provided us with the proper dimensions of how the Mishkan was supposed to look and everything inside of it. What was in the Mishkan? There was a special menorah, the special candelabra, there was the Aroin, the Ark that contained the tablets. You have the special shulchan, the special table that had the lechem upon him, the special showbreads. A lot of stuff, mizbeach, altar, good stuff, a lot of great stuff. So the Torah tells us exactly how many amois, how many cubits it's supposed to be, height and width. The Torah tells us how it's supposed to be. The Gemara, if you learn up tractate Bechairis, says, that was Yud Zayin Amud Bey, 17b, that even though Hashem provided us the proper dimensions, Hashem didn't expect it to be perfect, perfect, perfect. Because when it comes to a buster of a dumb, flesh and blood, making something, you know, to the exact point, perfect, 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 it's hard to do. So the Talmud says that what Hashem wanted was, just you do the best you can, I'm telling you how to make it, get as close to as perfect as you can, and if it's 99% perfect, or 99.9%, or 99.999, you know, it's good enough, I'll take it. That's what the Talmud says. So it says the Briskarav, even though Hashem told us in the Talmud, and then at Harsinai, don't worry, look, you, I'm telling you the measurements, you just make it as best as you can, and I'll, and I'll accept it. Just, just, do as close as you can. It's hard to make it perfect. You know, perfect, perfect, perfect. Measurement's hard to, if, you're, if you're flesh and blood to make perfect. So he said, so therefore, when the Taira in Parshas Truma, and Parshas Truma and Tetzave tells us what to do, that's when God told us what to do. By repeating it, and Vayakel, Vayakel and Pekude says the Briskerov, that's Hashem's way of saying that, Exactly as I commanded it, <clears throat> exactly, that's exactly perfectly how it was made. Despite the fact that I allowed you to have some variance to the inch, to the millimeter, to the exact precise measure for each cloth and each thread and each everything, just as I commanded it, copy and paste, exactly, that's exactly how it came out. That's how the Briskerov, in his commentary, has an approach to try to answer up that question of why is this repeated. Good stuff. Okay. Now, this is also pretty cool too. In the Chumash, words that appear next to each other again and again, like twice, always, it's a subject of drush. If you go through enough commentaries, you'll see that if words repeat, for example, in the Torah, it says, Avraham, Avraham. Back, like back and forth, like Avram, Avram. So why is his name said twice? The angel wants to talk to him. Just say, hey, Avram. Yes, well, he's hard of hearing. You have to say it twice. I speak to my kids. God bless them. I sometimes have to say their name more than once. But, you know, so any time that something appears back to back in one verse, it's a subject of drush. It's a subject of exposition. It's a classic rule in the Medrash and other commentaries. You'll find it. So it says in our parsha, Mishkan. These are this is the accounting of the Mishkan. And what's the next word in that comes in the Chumash after Mishkan? Mishkan. It says it again. Mishkan. Mishkan. This is the accounting of the Mishkan. Mishkan. It says it again twice back to back. Question is why? Why? It's a subject of drush. It's basically if uh, if you. If, if a person becomes familiar with the rules of, of exposition in the Midrash and everything else, it's basically slathered in yellow metric markers saying, expound on me, expound on me, there's something here. It's like, it's code word, there's the Devar Taira or more here to be learned up. So how does it go? So the Midrash in Shmois Rabbah, in our Parsha, under, under, ice, uh, it's under Parsha Nun Aleph Ois Beis, says that the Mishkan, the word Mishkan, 
repeats twice at the beginning of our parsha to allude to the two Beis Hamikdashes, to the two holy temples that would be destroyed. The Mishkan, the Mishkan, the tabernacle, was the forerunner of the holy temple. So Mishkan, 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 Mishkan is alluding to the first temple and the second temple that were destroyed because of the sins of the Jewish people. And the Midrash connects a posik in Nehemiah. There's a prophet who's lesser known called Nehemiah that comprises the book of Tanakh. There's Ezra and Nehemiah at the beginning of what we call Bayesheni, the second temple period. And in, in the book of Nehemiah, it says, Chavoyl, Chavalanu, Lach. We have been destructive towards you. Uh, we didn't observe your mitzvahs that you commanded us. Okay, fine. So, Chavol, Chavalanu, Lach. We have been destructive, destructive towards you. Destructive, destructive. Chavol, Chavol, that's Shairesh. Ches, Beis, Lamed is to be destructive towards. And it says it twice, corresponding to Mishkan, Mishkan. That's why. Two temples were destroyed, and that's why. Okay. The Mishkan itself was actually never really destroyed. Many commentaries speak about it. But the first temple and second temple were destroyed, and that's what it's going on. Okay? So far, so good. Now, that's the Medrash. Now, let me fast forward a couple thousand years in commentary, and we'll get to the Chassam Cipher. Welcome, welcome. Let's do it. Okay. The question is, why does the word Mishkan repeat twice? Yes? Mishkan, Mishkan. So the Chassam Soifer in the Tyrus Moshe has a very, very different novel approach. He writes that Moshe Rabbeinu, Moshe, welcome. The, the question we're discussing right now as you're walking in is why does the word Mishkan appear twice in the beginning of our Parsha? The Parsha begins, these are the countings of the Mishkan, and then it says again, then it says again, Mishkan. Tabernacle, tabernacle, Mishkan, Mishkan. It says it twice. Why does it say it twice? What is that about? So Chassam Seifer in the Tyrus Moshe says that Moshe Rabbeinu did something pretty unique and novel here. You know what he did? Moshe Rabbeinu, after he built and he, con and he supervised the building of the Mishkan, there was some extra money from the Jewish people's contribution. So after he built the shul, so to speak, the mishkan, you know what he built? With the extra money, he built a base medrash, a study hall, to learn Torah right next door, next to the mishkan. Many people don't know this. It's a chsam cipher. He built a base medrash, a yeshiva, a kailel, right next door to the mishkan. So why does it say, mishkan, mishkan, mishkan twice? First mishkan is sort of like, place to connect Hashem in terms of avoid the service, worship of Hashem, prayer, tefillah, karbonis, offerings. That's Mishkan. Mishkan, the second Mishkan, is like something similar to the Mishkan, and that's going on that Moshe Rabbeinu made a base medrash right next door to it. Interesting stuff. It's a lesser known Chassam Seifer. Now, if you would ask, from where did Moshe and the Jewish people get the materials to build a Mishkan? Where did Moshe get the money? Where did he get it from? Where did it come from? So the Chassam Seifer notes it's alluded to in the Chumash itself, okay? So listen to what the verse says. Chapter 36, verse 7 and 8 in our parsha. It says, Moshe commanded. And they proclaimed in the camp. And this is what it says in our parsha: Man and woman shall do no more work towards a portion of the sanctuary. And the nation was held back from giving. Can you imagine that? So many people wanted to give donations to the building of the Mishkan. Had to be held back. 
I've never had a problem like that running the Jewish Executive Learning Network, that I had to physically restrain people from giving. May, we, may every good Torah organization be uh, blessed in such a thing. You have to physically restrain people from giving. No, don't give anymore. Okay, fine, you know. Okay, Baruch Hashem. Every Jewish organization should have such a problem. But that's, but that's what it says. The people had to be restrained. Now look what it says next. And it says, and the work was enough for them. And then it says, and they had a surplus. So the word for it was enough for them was dayom. Dayom, day means it's enough. Dayom, it was enough for them. And then it says, and, and they had a surplus, it says vehoser. Vehoser means there was extra, surplus. Dayom means there was enough. So how does it even work together? If there's enough, mean there's enough. I need, I have eight people, everybody gets a slice of pizza, I have eight slices, Dayam, there's enough for them. It's good. Enough means I need this amount, and I have exactly that amount. So that's dayam, that's enough. But it says in the next word, the heiser, and there was a surplus, there was extra. Extra means I have two extra slices, and uh, I needed eight, I have ten. That's the heiser. And dayam means there's just enough. So how does it work together? So the Chsam Seifer says that the people actually gave enough, but what happened was Hashem assisted them in doing the malacha, and therefore, there ended up being extra. So they gave enough to do it, but Hashem came and gave his blessing on it to make it stretch. And from that extra, Moshe Rabbeinu built the extra Mishkan, which was the base medrash to learn Taira. So you can daven over here, learn Taira over here. Pretty good. You don't have to go too far. Okay. So that's I'm sorry for why it says Mishkan, Mishkan. Okay. Ad Khan up to here. That's Chassam Soifer. How you doing, Lisa? Good. Yeah. Good? Okay, good, good, good. All right, let's go weiter. Let's go further. Now, this is an important idea because we're trying to wrap up the Mishkan Torahs about the building of the Mishkan. So I want to make a general point about how the structure of the edifice went and operated. Here we go. If you look at the Mishkan, you see that it was very, very, it was nice on the outside. And the stuff that was really, really beautiful and ornate and fancy was more on the inside. Okay? It was very nice and respectable and um, attractive on the outside, but the really, really beautiful, precious, fancy stuff was on the inside. So what do I want to say from that? I want to say what the commentaries say. Number one, it's a lesson to us that that's the way we're supposed to be as a Jew. The Torah says earlier on in Parshish Truma, other places, that we're supposed to make ourselves into like a miniature Mishkan. We're supposed to make ourselves like that. So if, however the Mishkan was, we're supposed to be that way also, okay? That means, A, means a bunch of things. Number one, we're supposed to walk around and look nice and clean and respectable and presentable, you know, kind of like the Mishkan on the outside. But the really nice, valuable, greatest, highest level stuff should be inward and internal, okay? The stuff on the inside is supposed to be the most beautiful of all, okay? Unfortunately, some people don't have much going on on the inside at all. And uh, the very little that they have, um, uh, you know, they just flaunt on the outside. But a person should feel comfortable that you don't have to be ostentatious and show. You should look nice and respectable on the outside as a, as a Jew. But the really nice stuff, your Torah and your mitzvahs and your maizim toivim, and hopefully your good character traits and a good heart, that's supposed to be basically on the inside. Okay, everyone follow so far? That's how we're supposed to be. Now, <clears throat> this idea reminds me of a teaching of the Chida. The Chida says something interesting. He writes 
that there are 22 attributes, midais, traits, that a person should incorporate when doing mitzvahs. There's 22 attributes that you're supposed to incorporate. Now, it would take more than the time we have allocated tonight to go into what they are. But he goes through the letters of the Aleph base, Aleph Beit Gimel Dalet Hey, and for each letter, the Chidon gives a Midah, a character trait that you're supposed to have. He says that the letter Samech, I always remember this Chidon when I tie it into the Mishkan over here. He says that the letter Samech represents the word Seser, Seter, Seser, which means hiddenness. Why? He says that when you do mitzvahs, you should try, in general, to keep them hidden as far as possible from other people. Now, as possible, there's times you have to share. I was trying to help someone today to raise money for food for a Jew who doesn't have enough food, okay? So, so if, if that person reached out to me to try to see if I can help raise a few bucks to help this person have food, I mean, the fact that they're trying to be involved in this chesed and this mitzvah, they got to talk about it, you know? It's like somebody called me up, he goes, can I have money? Um, why? Can't tell you, <laughs> you know? Can I, just, I mean, you know, you have to talk, you know? There's, it's, it's, so yeah, some, sometimes you can keep it quiet, sometimes you can't. If you want to fundraise for an organization or other things, it's like, it's like I, I was uh, with a very wealthy person in Brooklyn the other day. Baruch Hashem. You know, we were meeting and talking. So he says, so tell me about your organization. I can't tell you. You know, so there's times, you know, you're, the mitzvahs in avoid the Hashem, you're involved with his seser, you got to keep hidden, and there's times you can't. But in general, he says, it's basically, the Chidah's point is similar to the Mishkan, that the nicest, greatest stuff should be inside, unless there's a time to take it out and show it and, and present what's going on. That's the way we're supposed to be, ideally. Okay. Now, I want to talk about the physical positioning of the Mishkan in a way many people haven't heard it before. The, if, now, just bear with me. Many people just find this a little confusing for a moment, but it's not. You just have to pay attention for half a second to north, south, east, west, and then, then you hop the vart, you hop the idea, you grab it, and we move on. The way the Mishkan was oriented, I'd say there's a north, uh, north east, west, south. You have four sides, okay? So what happened was this. The entrance to the Mishkan, the going in, and the screen to go in, that was on the east side. Now, on camera, my east will be west, but just, just trust me, okay? The entrance and the screen, that's on the east side. Now, okay, fine. The north side and the south side and the west side, those were the really, really busy active side. The entrance, so just come in, that was on the east. The north, south, west, they had the action. They had these walls, these sort of, let's say, uh, sort of like... Um, let's say the three basic walls of the Mishkan, were made out of something called Atzei Shitim. In English, they call it Acacia wood. We'll talk about that later in the Parsha. That was made on the north, south, and west, not on east, okay? And the Holy of Holies, the Kodesh HaKadoshim, the most holy part of the Mishkan, that was on the west, the western wall of the Mishkan. It was on the western side near the western wall. And it was all basically there. The eastern side, if you know the structure of the Mishkan, and to be honest, it's a little hard to do. As you go through this parsha, and maybe that's why Hashem gives it also again and again and again in the Chumash, to try to understand it, because it's a lot of stuff. People's eyes sometimes glaze over trying to orient what is this. But if you really look at the Mishkan, north-south and west had the action and the walls and everything else, and the more holy the stuff, it was going towards the west. What is this about? Why is the eastern side so ignored in the Mishkan? Okay, so I'll tell you an unbelievable answer. It goes like this. At the time when the Mishkan was built, 
the sun, the Shemesh, the sun, El Sol, for you, right? We have it in hopefully most languages covered, right? The sun was worshipped in the world. The sun, sun worship. Now I'm from Boca Raton, Florida. I know some people that worship the sun also. But that's a different kind of sun worship. I'm talking about thinking it's like the Rabbi Nishalaylam, God or something like that, okay? Sun worship was in very powerful at that time. So where does the sun rise? The sun rises in the east. So Hashem made it so as to ignore the sun and turn our backs on it, so to speak, the entire Mishkan was oriented away from the sun. Interesting. And when people would enter and bow in the Mishkan, they would bow down towards Hashem and the Shekhinah, God's presence. Where would they bow? Bow towards the west, turn my back on the sun. I'm not interested in you. I'm interested in Hashem. That's why they did it. And the sun, and by the way, the Beis HaMikdash, the service of the temple was primarily done in the morning and in the day. By the time as the sun was going to set, most of the stuff had already been done. Okay? Also, it's interesting, the carbon tumid, the daily carbon that was brought in the morning, it was brought, where was it? On the Mizbeach. Now you have the altar now. Where would it be brought? So the morning carbon, the morning offering was brought on the north, picture this in your mind, the northwest corner of the Mizbeach. Why in the morning is it on the northwest? The answer is to get as far away from the sun as possible. And why was it that in the afternoon, where was the offering brought on the Mizbeach on the altar? On the northeast corner. Why? Because now the sun is over here on the west. So now to get as far away from possible, we would bring the carb. And the halacha is, if you look up at the parish and you look this up, it was on the northeast corner. Always be as far away from the avoid the zora of the sun as possible. It's a nice idea. When it comes to ideas that are antithetical to Judaism, we want to turn our back on them as much as we can and go f as far away as possible. You bring in the, your tuma, your impurity over here, I'm going to face this way. Oh yeah, now you moved over here, I'm turning my back to you this way. I want to get as far away from you as I can. And you actually see that in the physical structure of the Mishkan, how it was oriented and how it works. Very, very fascinating stuff. How are we doing? Yes? Good? All right, let's go weiter. Let's go further. So chapter 39 of Parshish Pekude is going to speak about the big day kahuna, the garments of the kaihanim at length like you never saw before. Well, actually, you did see before <laughs> a couple parshas ago, but you know what I mean. Now, it's interesting. Let's talk about the garments of the kayan gadol because it's in our parsha. There's a Gemara in Tractate Rosh Hashanah, 26a. The Talmud says, that while several of the Koyan Godel's garments, the high priest's garments, were made out of either gold or gold thread. This was nice stuff. Real, this is legitimate. This wasn't the cheap stuff you buy uh, on sale. This was real gold and gold threads. And even though he would wear them for the entire year on Yom Kippur, and on Yom Kippur the Koyan Godel, the high priest, wouldn't wear any form of gold when he would enter into the Kaddish HaKadashim, the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies was a special room inside the Beis HaMikdash, first in the Mishkan and then later in the Holy Temple in Jerusalem, where the Ark, the Ark of the Covenant, the golden box, which is a box and a box and a box, uh, that contained uh, the broken tablets of the first Ten Commandments, and then also the second one, and the original Torah that Moshe wrote was stored in there also. That... That when the Kayin Gadol would only go in there on Yom Kippur. He was only allowed in. And even though he would always wear gold and gold threads and his clothes, and even on Yom Kippur, when he would go in to the Kaddish HaKadoshim, the Holy of Holies, he was not allowed to wear it. 
Instead, he had to take off his gold, no gold, and he had to wear instead four garments made of pure linen. This is all in the parsha. It's all in the parsha. Question is why? Why? What's wrong with wearing the gold? You know, it's nice stuff. You're going into a special place. What's wrong with the gold? Why do you have to wear linen? So there's a famous rule that the Gemara enunciates, and in Aramaic it says this. It says, Ein kateger naase seneger. Ein kateger, that means an accuser. A, uh, a kateger means that which brings a kitrug. An accusation, naase seneger, cannot be a defender. An accuser cannot be a defender. An accuser cannot be a defender. And it also says elsewhere in the Gemara, the opposite. The opposite as well. So I wonder if you, maybe you can switch from being a defense attorney to a prosecutor in uh, the legal system. But uh, the Gemara says it doesn't work like that spiritually. An accuser can't be a defender. What's this about? Answer is this. The Chet HaEgel, the sin of the golden calf, was accomplished with gold. So therefore, it wasn't proper for a Kayan Gadol to have any connection to that sin, any reminder of it at all, even indirectly, when he would enter into the Kaddish HaKadoshim, the Holy of Holies, to plead to Hashem to give the Jewish people a good year. When he would go into the Holy of Holies, the Gemara records in Tractate Yuma, all these prayers that he would say, Hashem, help the Jews, help a good year, a blessed year, all of this stuff. So what do we say? Ein Kateger Nasus and Eger. So that which is connected to Kitrug, accusation, meaning the gold, any remembrance of gold, he wanted to have nothing to do with it when he would come in to ask Hashem. It's not because it was already used in accusation, <clears throat> he's not going to wear it now. Okay? So far, so good? Good. That's part A. Now let's keep going. Question is, before we get to that, incidentally, if you look in the Talmud, it says that if you have a shofar, let's say you blow on Rosh Hashanah, the horn of the cow is never allowed to be used as a shofar on Rosh Hashanah. The Talmud gives different animals that will be okay, a ram's horn, other animals, but you're not allowed to ever use the horn of a cow. Why? So the Talmud gives that as the same exact reason. Because you're going to blow on Rosh Hashanah, you're going to blow the horn of a cow. Oh, really? You want Hashem to have mercy on you this year? You know, everything else. Yeah, but we have this rule. You don't want that which has been in any way connected to something that's been a, an accusation on you to be used in your defense. Don't bring it up. Don't bring it up. If you got in trouble with this before, it's not the time to bring it up again. Okay, not the time to bring it up. Okay. Also, you should know, that's why the commentaries say also, there's a minig, many women don't wear gold jewelry on Rosh Hashanah or Yom Kippur. It's not a law, it's not absolutely obligatory, but many women don't, and it's found in the codes of Jewish law. Same idea. On a day we're begging Hashem for mercy and forgive us and everything else, it's not the time to have any inkling or any connection to what we did wrong. Okay. Now, if you're paying close attention, you've read the parishes in the last couple of weeks, you have a very strong question to ask over here. What's that? Oh, yeah. Oh, really? I get it. So what you're saying is the Kayin Gadol wouldn't wear gold and no gold threads and none of the gold going into the Holy of Holies. Why? Ugh, don't want to have any connection to gold. Well, hello? Hey, what about the Aroin, the Ark? The Ark itself was a huge, a lot of gold. It was a gold and there was a wood box in it and another gold box. It's gold. And the Keruvim, the, the, 
angelic figures that were on top, they were also made of gold. The whole thing was gold. <laughs> you know, so like, it's coming in, like, I don't want to mention anything of gold. You know, I don't want to have any connection to gold. Yeah, well, the, the, whole thing's, the whole thing's in there is gold. Imagine that, you, you try not to, you know, bring up a reminder of something that'll upset a person, and there's a stack of documents sitting against you, you know. The whole thing is gold, so we'll be wrong of it. So the Gemara advances one reason why it was okay for there to be so much gold in there that already was in there, but not that which he was bringing in. I'm going to tell you an unbelievable teret, a great answer to this question based on something I said in previous weeks about Betzalel. Listen to this, okay? In other weeks, who's Betzalel, first of all? Betzalel was the chief architect of the Mishkan. Hashem appointed Betzalel to be the main guy, to be the architect to build the Mishkan. Now, I don't know if it was last week, maybe already. I'm, the weeks are melding together in my head. But last week, I think it was, I said, that if you look at the commentaries, the Chedush HaRim, Rukhaim Belajan, or others, they point out that really what happened was that B'Tzalel had a special gift from Hashem and that he was able to discern the kavona, the focus and the intention of everybody who gave everything to the Mishkan. Whatever you gave, he could think. He understood what you gave and how it should be used. If you gave something because you wanted to be a hot shot and get honor, he's like, yeah, that's very nice. We're going to use that for a lower item in the Mishkan. You gave something sincerely and you earned the money ultra honestly and with great sacrifice, we're going to use it for something holy. Okay, so what happened? So therefore, they say like this, that for something ultra-holy, which was like the most holy item in the Mishkan, the Ark, B'tzalel only took gold from tzaddikim gemurim, people who were completely ultra-high righteous, or people, so therefore they never were involved in the Egel, the sin of the golden calf, or if they were involved in the sin of the golden calf, what would happen? Then they were people who did shuva. So therefore, so all of the gold, that went into the ark that was inside the Holy of Holies had no connection at all to the sin of the golden calf. Because it's either given by people that had nothing to do with it, which Batalil had the ability to figure out if this was somebody who did or didn't, or somebody who was involved, who did shuva, repented, erased it, and therefore was clean. Okay? So when Batalil built the ark, it was not a problem that there was no gold from that, and therefore the, the fact that there was that much gold inside the Holy of Holies was not an accusation on the Jewish people because it had no connection to people who did that sin. So you would ask me, okay, well, that's very nice, but what about the clothes of the Kayin Gadol? What about him and his gold and his threads? What about that? The answer is, they want to say like this, that the Kayin Gadol, the high priest of the Jewish people, he's the representative of the Jewish people. When he goes in there, on the, on the Yom Kaddish, on such a holy day like Yom Kippur, he's going in, and he's going in representing the Jewish people. And if he's going to go in representing the Jewish people, you better be sure he's a representative of all the people. So even if he himself had no connection to that sin, when you're representing the whole people, you're representing all of the people. The sinners, the tzaddikim, the righteous, everything in between, the best from the best, the lowest from the lowest. So therefore, for him as the representative, coming in in the garments of the representative, he himself could not be wearing anything connected to gold as a representative. But what would it not be a problem for all the gold that was already sitting there inside the Kodesh HaGadoshim, the answer is Betzalel gave it with the approach that I brought from the Gedolim last week. And therefore, it had no connection, no smell at all, no problem at all connected to the, to the sin of the golden calf because he made sure that those people had no, no share in giving such an ultimate high thing. 
And that's why there's a difference between one and the other. How are we doing? Okay? Uh, there's a lot of uh, different approaches, different material here. Trying to have something in it, hopefully for everybody, different, uh, the different ways people get kind of stimulated. Okay. Now, I'd like to speak about the Kirashim, the planks of the Mishkan. Kirashim. Kirashim means planks. You're my resident uh, Israeli attorney, lawyer, soldier, Lashon uh, HaKadosh, holy tongue expert, okay? So, Kirashim. Yeah, so, okay. In Lake we call them Krashim, but it's the same thing, okay? Krashim, the planks. The planks, the Mishkan was made of these big planks of wood that were put all together and around and so on and so forth. Now, it's called Atzei Shitim in Hebrew. We said that earlier. In English, they call it Acacia wood. What do I know from wood? I know from laminate. I, I'm not a wood guy, okay? But that's what it's called. Atzei Shitim, fine. What's special about this wood? Why was it that Hashem wanted this to be the wood of the Mishkan? It's got to be a Devar Taira. I mean, it's, and, and the truth is, there's a Devar Taira in everything. You just have to work on it to figure out what it is. But why? Why? There's no other wood in the world that Hashem says you have to take this wood to build a Mishkan. So it's interesting. It's, they say like this. If you look in the Midrash, this is just Midrash and Shmos Rabbah, says that one of the properties of this kind of wood, this atzei shitim, this acacia wood, one of its properties, there's something unique about it. It's from a type of tree that doesn't bear fruit. Now, I don't know much about planting and trees and botany and all this stuff, but I do know there's some trees that make fruit, oranges and, and apples and things like this, and I guess there's some trees that just don't make fruit. Never. I never sat there. I studied. I watched. I don't really pay attention to this stuff, but there's some trees that don't make fruit. Atei shitim, one of its properties, it's a type of tree that doesn't make fruit. So why is that important in the making of the Mishkan? Okay? So this is an unbelievable, an unbelievable idea that the commentaries say. What is the Mishkan? The Mishkan is the prototype and representation of the first base Hamikdash that we'll ever have. The first temple, the first shul, the first synagogue, the first, the first, the, the first, the first shul, kailal, yeshiva, synagogue, building. That was the Mishkan. That was the first Jewish people's building. And it was made from what? Hatzeshitim. It was made out of this acacia wood, which is made from a kind of wood of a tree that doesn't bear fruit. So you know what that's about? This was worth schlepping from Brooklyn just to hear this point, yeah? So they say like this. So the Moreshes Moshe and others want to say this. From the fact that the first temple, shul, kolel, yeshiva, building, synagogue, was made out of a wood that doesn't bear fruits, it's to come and tell you that it is not the structure in Judaism which bears fruit. It's not the building that makes the fruit. It's not the building that gives the nachas to the Jewish people. It's not the building that bears fruit. It's what goes on inside the building. The building itself produces no fruit. Let me say it this way, differently, okay? Go around America, okay? Go around America on your own time. Just don't miss our shear. But go around, you make sure you're back for Sunday night. But go around, and every city you'll go to in America that has had substantial, sizable Jewish population. You know what you'll find? You'll find tons of synagogues. Do it outside in New York. You can go do this tonight with your free time. Everywhere, there's massive, huge, big buildings and synagogues that cost millions or tens of millions of dollars to build, and there's cemeteries. They're empty. They're dead. There's nothing going on inside of them. And I don't mean tonight. 
I mean on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur even and Shabbos. Go on a regular shot. There's nothing going on. There's nothing going on. Go on the high holidays. You'll go see 50, 60, 70% of the people aren't even Jewish. Okay? They're people who had bad conversions and, and people who didn't even convert. Eh, filled with non-Jews. And that's even on the best days of the year. Normally they're just, you can hear the crickets chirp. It's just, it's nothing. Okay? There's nothing going on. But what happened? We built a nice building. It's a huge building. We put $20 million into our building campaign. What happened? Yeah, you know what happened? Problem is, you didn't learn Parshish's uh, uh, day. The answer is that the building doesn't give fruit. You think you're going to have nachas from a building, that there's going to be Jews that come from it, and kids and grandkids and great-grandkids and everything else. What are you talking about? The building doesn't do anything. Go, and go in every city, and I'll tell you something else. Most of the most farshlepta buildings that are like nothing special are actually the buildings where people keep Tyra and mitzvahs and learn Tyra and have shiurim and everything else. Those buildings like falling apart or they don't even have a building or it's like, you know what I mean? And, but there, that's where the people all marry Jewish and their kids marry Jewish and the grandkids marry Jewish and it keeps going and going. You know, that building ain't much, it's nothing really to look at, okay? But that's producing the fruits of Judaism. I grew up in Boca Raton, Florida. I could tell you that the two biggest shuls that, I, that existed down there, the one I grew up in, was millions of dollars went into that synagogue. I'm saying in the 80s, which you know, is even more and more, more money now. Nothing doing. You know how many kids I grew up with that ended up marrying people who aren't Jewish and everything else? Building? Shkayach. No fruit, you know? Because there's nobody inside the building driving an engine of Taira and mitzvahs and authentic Yiddishkeit and, and real learning. There's not a Tamachacham in the place who's making the place go as an engine. So guess what? No fruits, you know? You can have a small place, a room, a building, a rent, something small. But if what's going on inside of it is the real deal, you'll end up having you'll end up having Jewish continuity, you know? And uh, many communities have a relatively dumpy uh, shul, but what's going on inside is the, is the real engine generating the horsepower of Judaism. It keeps going, it keeps going. So what does it have to do? So it's a nice idea on the Mishkan. The Mishkan was made out of atze shitim, the acacia wood, a, a, which is a wood on purpose that bears no fruit, because buildings give no fruit in Judaism. And the biggest guarantee, if you ever would want one, that a synagogue is not going to be successful is to pour millions and millions of dollars into the building and you have an ultra fancy building and, but the person or the people running it and behind it as the engine are fourth or fifth or sixth rate in terms of their commitment to Taira and their ability to connect with people and their ability to bring authentic Judaism to people, okay? If you'll have that, even if your building will be a dump, it'll survive and they'll survive and it'll keep going, okay? Good, yeah. You have a question? Can I just ask a question? Because we're almost going to wrap up this year. Can we, we'll wrap it up, and we can talk to your heart's content. Is that fair? Fair? Okay, good. Okay, we'll just maybe we'll just cover a little bit more. So much to say. Hard to know where to begin and where to pick up. Ooh, a lot of good stuff. Let's talk about Jewish women, okay? Let's talk about Jewish women. No, it's, it's, it's in the Parsha. It's in the Mishkan. I don't mean specific ones, uh, Rachel and, and Shandy and uh, Basya. I mean the, the general topic, the general topic. In chapter 39, verses 35 and 37, they speak about the Ark, the Aroin, and the Menorah, respectively. They speak about both in our parasha. Now, if you learn up the words of Chazal, the words of the sages, you'll learn that the Ark, the Aroin, is a, is a symbol of the Torah, 
And the menorah, the menorah, is also a symbol of Torah. There's two symbols of Torah in the Mishkan. Now the Ark is a symbol of the, of the Torah, and that kind of makes sense a little bit, because you have the Luchos, the tablets, which contains the commandments, and Moshe's first Torah, the original one that Hashem dictated to him, was kept in there. Got it. But the menorah also, the menorah, represents Torah as well. So the question is, what is the difference between the two of them? Why do we need two symbols of Torah in the Kalim? There's, what do you need? We need two symbols of Torah for. <clears throat> so this is connected to Jewish women, and I'll explain, okay? The, the, the Torah that symbolizes a man's primary connection to Torah is represented by the Ark, the Aroin. And the symbol of a woman's connection, excuse me, is symbolized, I said it backwards. The symbol of a man's connection to Tyra is symbolized by the Menaira. Um, and the symbol of a woman's connection to Tyra is symbolized by the Ark. Okay? So what happened? So if you know Jewish history, of those two Kalim, the two items in the temple, one was captured by the Gentiles and carried into exile, and one was not which was carried away when the temple was destroyed? The answer is, what was carried away was the menorah and, uh, by the Romans. They took it away. They took it away, and they captured it. If you go to Rome, which I've never been there, if somebody offers me a plane ticket or something, I'll be happy to, to go. I'll go. I'll go with you, Alex. You're a good guy. I'll go. We'll do it. But I haven't had a chance to go to Rome yet. Maybe one day, God willing. And if you go there, you have the Arch of Titus, the Arch of Titus. And you have on there a depiction, and that's where they came back, and when they entered the Romans, when they destroyed Yerushalayim. And you still see over there on the arch a picture of them capturing the menorah and schlepping it into exile. But how come they don't have a picture of the Aroin, the Ark? The answer is the Ark was never captured. The Gemara speaks about this, that uh, King Solomon made it, that there would be a, under the floor of the Holy Temple, special chambers. I'm not going to get into it tonight. Mishnah, Shkalim, the whole Torah is on it. That basically, that the Ark, if the Temple would ever be destroyed, the Aroin was hidden under the ground, deep under the ground in a chamber, that it would be safe. So that would happen. The Menorah was captured, and that's a symbol of the man's Torah. And it went into Gaulus, it went into exile, it was gone. But the woman's symbol of Torah, which was the Ark, the Aroin, was actually buried and safe and never taken away. That's what it's, that's just, that's up to there, that's fact. So what does that mean? So some of the commentaries want to explain like this, okay? We have a concept in Torah called Yerida Hadiris, which means decline of the generations. What does it mean, decline of the generations? That means that in general, the further we get from Har Sinai, from Mount Sinai, it becomes more and more and more difficult for a person to accomplish spiritually that which the earlier generations were able to do. That's why in Torah, we look at, uh, in Torah scholarship, we look at things like the Rambam, or Rashi, or the Talmud, and the earlier commentaries as being more authoritative, because they were closer to Har Sinai, and uh, they were able to basically uh, accomplish things in Torah scholarship and spirituality that we can't able to do today. That's how it works with Yerida Hadiris. But you ready for this? Some commentaries suggest that Yerida Hadiris, spiritual accomplishment, being on a decline, and not being able to do what happened in earlier generations, that's only going on the Taira of the man meaning the Aaron, excuse me, the Menorah that was captured by the Gentiles and brought into, into exile, Gaulus, captivity, that symbol of them 
that only applies to the Torah of a man. But a woman, a woman, her ability to accomplish in spirituality and connection to Hashem, that was never captured. That never went away. So what does that mean practically? Practically speaking, in plain English, no matter what I'll ever do my entire life and how much I'll ever study and learn and push and anything else, I will never be able to accomplish what the Chavetz Chaim did. I just never will. I will just never be able to do and accomplish because there's the Arida Dairis and the Tyra the man and its symbol the Menaira was that's part of the symbolism why it was captured. I'll just never be able to. I'll just never be able to recreate it. <clears throat> and the Chavetz Chaim, as great and lofty as he was, was not like the Vilna in a couple hundred uh, years earlier, and so on and so forth, so on and so forth. But the Torah is telling us here, by virtue of the fact that there's two Kalim, the Ark and the Menorah, both representing Tyra, that a woman today, a Jewish woman, if she'll keep the Tyra and Mitzvahs, is able to accomplish in spirituality that which is on par and equal to with that with any of the generations of Jewish women who came before. So in theory and in actuality, if a person would actually keep their foot on the gas pedal and focus and do the right things for a lifetime, the Jewish people today could produce someone on par with a, a Sarah, a Rivka, a Rachel, a Leah, a Yehudis, a Devorah, and some of the great women we had in Jewish history. That could be produced today. And that's symbolized by the Ark, which is one of the symbols of the Torah, but the one that never got captured. But the Torah of the man, which is symbolized by the Menaira, that is not something we'll be able to reproduce anymore. It's something that's never going to come back, and therefore that is why they get their own symbol. Interesting idea. So that's pro, a nice pro Jewish woman idea, and it's connected to the idea why you have two of these items, okay? Um, I'm going to share with you maybe one more idea, and we'll wrap it up. Here we go. If you look in the Gemara, in Tractate Megillah, Yuma, Baba Basra, the Talmud makes it clear that the Aroin, the Ark, which we spent so much time in this parasha speaking about, took up no space. If you knew, if you know the dimensions of the Kodesh HaKadoshim, the Holy of Holies, and you also would look and calculate the math of the Aroin, the Ark, guess what? The Ark the Aroin took up no space. Um, um, miraculously, if you would do the number crunching in the Talmud, you see the Ark took up no space. It was something that literally took up no space, which is kind of interesting. Why? Why is that? Why is that about? God doesn't make miracles just to impress us. Why would he make it that the Ark, in its room where it would be contained, takes up no space? So I'd like to suggest to you this answer. And it's as follows, okay? All of us have had this experience. We look at our lives and you say, you know what? I'm excited and I'm inspired and I want to do more and I want to learn more and I want to grow and stuff. It sounds great. I feel it. It's nice. And then you look at your life and you say, wait a minute. I can't do more. My life's already packed. Packed with Torah, packed with mitzvahs, packed with helping people, packed with learning. My life's packed. I can't get in more. I can't get in more. In other words, a person could look at their life and say, my life is already a place of holiness. There's no room for more. It's not going to fit. There is no room for more. My life is already like a Kodesh HaKadosh, I'm a holy of holies. It's already a place of holiness. There's not room to pack in more. <clears throat> so what are you supposed to do? The Torah instruction is, don't do the math. Just take the, the Ark, the Aroin, which represents holiness, and add it to a place even that's already full of holiness. Add it. Oh, but wait, the number's not going to add. It's not going to work. Guess what? Keep quiet. It's not your problem. Your job is to add more Torah, more mitzvahs, more holiness, more growth, and you leave it to Hashem to make the math work. 
If the only way the math of growing in spirituality is going to work is for Hashem to do a miracle and fudge the numbers to make it work, what we say, in a miraculous way, that's his problem. You hear? Our job, your job, my job, is to basically just add more. More Torah study, more chesed, more helping people, more involvement, more giving, more giving of ourselves. That's our job. Say, well, it's not going to work. The math's not going to fit. My life is like already a, pa- a place of holiness. Too bad. It's not your problem. Your job is to do what you're supposed to and add more. And if the only way it'll fit is God making the math work, that's going to work. We're not supposed to be expending our energy all the time making calculations. And the truth of life is, and I'm sure we've all experienced this in different ways, <clears throat> when, if we would stop and think all the time before we have a chance to do something good or worthwhile, how's it going to work? How's it going to fit? Is it going to make sense? You know what? We would do nothing. Okay? We would do nothing. I'm sure there's many people in this room right now who really shouldn't be here. You have work tomorrow. You have things to do, pressures, tests, exams. Work, deadlines, you have all kinds of things to do. <coughs> and if it's not that, maybe you just have laundry to do. Maybe you just have, you have other things to do. Everybody has something else to do. You know what? You're here. You came anyway. Your life is busy. Lamaisa, we say, you just do it anyway. I myself, there's other things I could do, other thing, ways I could fill my time, but I just do it anyway. Don't make the math fit. Don't worry about the math. Just do it. Just add the tire, do the mitzvahs. You feel inspired to do a mitzvah, just do the mitzvah. Don't be busy with how the math works. And above all, remember, Hashem never punishes us for doing the right thing. You try to learn more Torah, you're never punished. I remember when I started learning Torah and I started keeping Shabbos, I was like, oh, I kept Shabbos, you know, five Shabbos in a row, ten in a row, but oh, what am I going to do? I have a final. It's not going to work. The answer is, just keep Shabbos. Nothing's going to happen. Okay? (laughs) Your grades won't go down. You know, you're not going to make less money. You're not going to go bankrupt. Nothing bad happens to you by doing a mitzvah. You just do it. And the truth is, you might not even say even for spiritual reasons. Sometimes it's just because we're like disorganized. We sometimes say, oh, I'm not going to go learn Torah tonight. I, I got to go work. Yeah? You just know you're going to fool around on Facebook for hours, you know, just surf the net and just, I don't know, just like watch Sports Center a bunch of times in a row. You know? You're just not going to do anything anyway sometimes. You know, so sometimes it's for spiritual reasons. God makes it work. But sometimes... We think, well, I'm not going to do a mitzvah because, oh, who knows, all all what I have to do. We all know that many times it doesn't happen that way, and we just sort of fritter away the time, you know? So anyway, as we wrap up the beginning of, uh, of the study of the Mishkan, which comprises the end, mostly the end of the Book of Shemais, that's something to bear in mind. We have the Mishkan. We're supposed to make ourselves into a Mishkan, and we're supposed to take all the lessons and all the different Taira and not relate to it as a little building, a small building, a small structure that was made thousands of years ago, but that we're supposed to make ourselves into a Mikdash and apply these lessons to us. And the last one I was saying was we're supposed to say, you know what, the math doesn't add up, add it in anyway. Imagine how puzzled they were, my, the Kaihanim, when they first had to put this, the, the Ara in the Ark, and they had to put it in there. Imagine how puzzled they were. Yankel, you know, I don't think the math's going to work. Beryl, I told you not to do it this way. Shab, it's all you know, Just do what Hashem told you to do. You add, and he'll make the math work out. That's always the way it goes, in learning and in anything else. Okay? Anyway, God willing, 
Next week we'll be back together with the beginning of the book of Vayikra, the book of Leviticus. So chazak, chazak, venis chazek. I thank you very much for tuning in. For those of you catching the class online, if you would like to reach out to me during the week, just simply shoot me an email, director at jeln.org. And I thank you for being here and learning with me and giving me an opportunity to share Tyre with you. And I wish you a tremendous week. Thanks.